If you have your Bibles, we'll go to the New Testament. We would ask you tonight if you would take your scriptures. Let's stand, turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 6 and verse number 6. Then we'll go to Philippians in chapter number 4. I'd ask you again to please continue to pray for the pastor. I want to take a little bit of time tonight and say, as I say often, that I love our pastor, love his family. And I want to say tonight, I love our church family. We're not able to be here a lot because of our schedule and traveling with the ministry. But we miss it when we're not here, and we enjoy it when we are. And uh, thank you so much for your prayers. And uh, on behalf of all the missionaries you support, let me say a hearty thank you for the faithfulness and the financial support, but also for the prayers. You never know when a missionary is needing help and uh, needing a little bit of uh, extra boost and God to do something. And you never know when God's going to hear us specifically and answer your prayer. So please continue to pray for us. Now tonight in the book of uh, 1 Timothy in chapter number 6 and verse number 6, I want to bring a message that I believe the Lord would have us to share with you tonight. There are many topics. I love preaching on the subject matter of missions and thought and contemplated that this evening. But the Lord has led me to this text in Philippians in chapter number 4. Let's read in 1 Timothy chapter number 6 and one verse, verse number 6. Notice the word but as this verse starts out. And when you see that little three-letter word in the Bible, it is always in contrast to what's been spoken. Notice says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now notice Philippians in chapter number 4, verse 11 and verse number 12. Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, which had its meager beginnings in a maximum security prison cell in Macedonia. He says in verse number 11 of chapter number 4 of Philippians, not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You may have caught that in both of our texts tonight that we've read, we have noticed that the word contentment is used. And tonight I'd like to speak for just a few brief moments on the subject matter of Christian contentment. We live in a day and age where Christians are about as discontented as the world is. And so by the grace of God tonight, I'd like to preach for just a moment on Christian contentment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we bow before you tonight. We love you. We thank you for this day again that you set before us. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people here tonight. I would ask you that you'll be with the pastor. May you continue to revive him, refresh him, give him strength, give him vitality. I would ask you, Lord, that when he mounts the pulpit on Sunday morning, that you'll give him a great fervor in his spirit and a great power and passion in his heart and soul. I'd ask you that you'll continue to bless this work in ministry. We'd never take for granted in any service, from small crowds to larger crowds, that there would be everyone that professes to be saved would be saved. So I'd pray tonight if there's someone here that is not saved, that does not know the Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. May you convict them, show them their need, help them to realize that need, and help them with a matter of repentance and turning by faith unto you. would ask you tonight that you will continue to encourage your people. May you continue to bless tonight, help our nation as we stand in such desperate need of your divine intervention. Be it our politicians, local, state, and nation. And God, may you help us and bring our nation back to you. We desperately need revival, and I pray that you'll send it. God, may you help each of us to meet the requirements for the revival. 
And God, may you help us to yield ourselves completely, unreservedly to thy perfect will. For we ask it tonight in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject matter of Christian contentment. Paul's writing to young Timothy and he says, but godliness with contentment, notice he says, is great gain. And then he says that he's learned at whatsoever state he's in, therewith to be content. I'll not take the time to go to 1 Corinthians in chapter number 11 and read of the persecutions and the sufferings that Paul went through. With his shipwrecks to have been beaten five times, with the cat of nine tails 195 times, it equals out that Paul was uh, beaten uh, for the testimony and for the sake of Christ. And yet here we find that he says, I've learned at whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. We live in a, a world where people are discontented. And it's not just the sinners, the ungodly, the unrighteous anymore. It is Christians. I meet Christians all over America and to travel to different nations around the globe. And people all over the world are discontented. They're not happy with their state of life. They're not happy with their affairs of life. They're not happy with their finances in life. And they're not happy with their uh, family and their children and their grandchildren and siblings. And it's just on and on and on. And I know that we live in a troublesome time. We live in a uh, time where Christians are being challenged uh, repeatedly, nonstop, concerning various uh, things in our life. We face those issues and it sometimes brings on a discouragement, a discontentment. And the Bible yet commands us that we are to be content in the things that God has given to us. And there are some things in Paul's life that helped him through all that he went through and through all that he faced to be contented in his life. I remember we were in the country of Uganda many years ago and we were distributing Bibles in the prisons and unlike here in the States, many of the officers actually lived along with their wives and children, the officers' families, lived inside the prison compound. And they were in a certain section of the institution. They didn't live in the cell blocks, but they actually lived inside the compound. And I remember one of the officers asked us uh, or the, if we would take a Bible to his wife and his children and uh, we did that, and as we went up to the little hut, uh, it was just a little mud hut with a thatched roof on it, and had a little makeshift, uh, looked like a sheet or something, pulled over the front for a door. And as we walked up, there were several uh, young children outside playing, and all of a sudden they looked up and they realized that there was a, a couple of white men standing at the front of their hut at the entranceway. And the youngest one scared him to death. He started hollering, Mazunga, Mazunga, and ran for his life. Well, we didn't know what it was. We didn't uh, have any idea what was going on. But through the interpreter, we found out that he was saying, white man, white man. And he had never seen a white man before and literally scared him. He took off running out into the, uh, the bush and the jungle. And the older sibling went inside the house. They'd never seen a white person before, but when they opened the curtain and we looked through the darkness of that little hut and on the backside was a, a little petite lady, uh, the officer's wife. And when she saw that we were missionaries and the interpreter had introduced us, she took and fell down to her knees and with her hands clasped and she was bowing her head as she came forward and she was walking on her knees to the door and she was saying, thank you missionaries, thank you for coming and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to our people and to our nation and thank you for bringing a Bible to this home. I noticed inside the house that they didn't have very many personal belongings. In fact, they had nothing more than a dirt floor. But I would like to testify tonight that the dirt floor was clean. It was swept 
and it was spotless, as spotless as dirt can be anyway. And they were a happy people. We went into areas where they literally had nothing more, and I cannot say the clothes on their back, but they had nothing more than the rags on their back. Many prisoners were wearing clothes that was passed from one prisoner down to the next prisoner when one would leave and they would pass it to another, and many of them really didn't even qualify to be any type of a clothing whatsoever. And yet there was a happiness and a peace and a contentment that was deep in their soul. There was a hunger and a thirst for the Bible and the Word of God. I remember as we entered into one institution and we'd counted the prisoners uh, with the staff or asked them how many they had, they'd give us a number, and we'd counted our New Testaments and we'd come up one shy of having enough Bibles to distribute to every prisoner inside that institution. They gathered out on the prison yard and one by one they came by and we passed out our Bibles. When it came to the last few prisoners that would walk by, I realized we were coming a little shy on our Bibles. We were one shy. And I somehow ended up with the last Bible in my hand out of all of our team. And two men were standing there wanting a Bible. But only had one Bible. And I didn't know who I was going to give the Bible to and which one I would choose to leave without a word of God. And so I turned my back to them and I whispered a prayer and I said, now Lord, you're going to have to work this out because I don't want to have to choose on who's going to get a Bible and who's not going to get a Bible, the divine word of God. When I turned around, all of a sudden one of the prisoners lunged for that Bible and knocked it out of my hand. They scuffled for it and fought over it. And when one of them finally grabbed possession of it, he held it to his chest and ran across a prison yard. And the prisoner without a Bible took off running after him, trying to chase him down and tackle him to take the Bible, the word of God from him. And yet I say to you, in the providence of God, when we got back to the van, we began to look in detail and found one more Bible inside that van that had slid up under the seats. We went back and gave the man a Bible. And I've never seen a people that were more content and more happy to receive a copy of God's divine word. And in the midst of their circumstances and in the midst of their situation, they were a happy people. I was in the country of the Philippines. And I'll get to my text momentarily. And we were preaching at the great Bible Baptist Church in Cebu. And Dr. Army Salva was the pastor at the time. And I preached on the subject matter of missions at the request of Dr. Jasalva. At the end of the service, a lady walked up to me and thanked us for coming to the Philippines and sharing the gospel of Christ. When she turned and walked away, and she was one of the happiest children of God, saints of God, I believe I've ever met. You would have thought she was a millionaire living in the Philippines. You would have thought she had not one single care on this planet Earth. There was a joy that exuberated from her presence and her countenance. When she turned and walked away, someone in the church walked up to me and said, oh, Brother Ellis, do you know who that is that you talked to? I said, I have no idea, but she was a precious saint, I can tell you that much. 
And he said to us, said, you got to know her testimony and her story. Said about three years ago, she came forward in a missions conference and bowed on the altar and said, God, I'll give you everything. Now, you and I sometimes, uh, we say we're going to give God everything and lay it on the altar, but we really don't mean everything. We just mean certain things that we're willing to give up, but we're not going to give up some of the deep, secret, hidden things of the heart. And when she said, I'm going to give God everything, she laid everything on the altar. And they said, Brother Ellis, she said to God, I'll give you 100% of everything that comes in the rest of my life whether it's clothes or finances or whatever I can do, I'll give it to you. And they said, Brother Ellis, she gives everything to the Lord. Every time someone tries to help her financially, she gives it to the work of the ministry of the local church and missions and gives it in offerings. She literally, you give her, if you could give her $1,000, which would be tens of thousands in the Philippines equal to American currency, and she'd lay it on the altar and give it to the church. And they said, Brother Ellis, do you know that the last three years she's given everything to God through the church? And she's got groceries. She's never missed a bill. She's never been laid on a payment. They said it's staggering what God does for her. And she is one of the most happy saints of God I've ever met. Now I'm talking about contentment. And so Paul said to young Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now I don't know about you tonight, but I don't want to be deficit in this area. I want to have contentment. I want to have godliness coupled with contentment. And I certainly want to be able to uh, proclaim with the Apostle Paul, that regardless of what my circumstances are, I want to have contentment. Someone has said, be content with what you have, but never with who you are or what you are. John Bunyan wrote, the same one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said, he that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his single guide. I am content with what I have, little bit or, or much, and the Lord contentment shall I crave because thou savest such as I, John Bunyan. Now I want to give you just a few things tonight to help us to learn how to be content with the Lord. Christian contentment. And I ask you tonight, are you content? Are you just happy in God regardless of your circumstances? The first thing I believe we can learn from the New Testament is that we need to live, learn to give thanks to God for everything. Paul had learned this through his circumstances and he learned according to the scriptures in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18, he said in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And you know what Paul's literally saying? is that every circumstance we go in life, go through in life, it is in the divine providence of God that he has ordained it, or at least he has allowed it to happen in our life. And Paul says we ought to be thankful regardless of our circumstances. Now, Job said that which is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. 
I've got a confession to make to you tonight. We were coming to church and this car come flying up behind us and, and then did, I wasn't going fast enough so they whipped over in the other lane to try to get by them. They weren't going fast enough and so it was a woman driver and she kept going back and forth and back and forth and finally I told Peggy, I said, there's one thing for sure. She's not trying to get home to her husband driving like that. She said, how do you know? I said, I ain't never seen a wife trying to get to her husband like that. Maybe a boyfriend, but not her husband. We live in a discontented world. But what we know tonight is that we have a clear-cut command in the Word of God to give thanks to God for everything in our life. Whether it's going our way or it's going against the grain, we have been commanded tonight to be thankful for everything and thank God for it. Let me ask you something. How long has it been since you thanked God for your troubles? Or have you ever? I'll be honest with you, I don't get up in the morning and start whistling for trouble to come along. Now I won't go as far as to say what one preacher did. He said, I don't look for trouble, I married it. Now, I didn't say that, okay? I said, one preacher said that. <clears throat> we don't have a dog, so we don't have a dog house, but we do, don't want to sleep outside. But we ought to learn to give God thanks for everything. And if we're going to have contentment in our heart, we've got to come to the place we're willing to be thankful for everything that God has given to us. And then we need to learn to have some contentment. It is a characteristic of a spirit-filled believer. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then notice what he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to make a melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find that we are to be thankful for everything. It is a mark of a man or a woman, boy or girl, who has been filled with the power and the Spirit of God. We cannot be filled with the Spirit of God and the power of God and be disgruntled. Secondly, we need to learn to rest in God's divine providence. You see, God's revealing his purpose sometimes in our life. He has a sovereign, determined uh, plan and purpose for each of our lives. And it's to benefit us and for his glory. As we consider the scriptures tonight and we look at the text, we consider the fact that God wants you and I to be thankful for all things. And we find that God wants us to be knowledgeable of his divine providence. You know, one of the things that kept the South in the Civil War so long was they believed so firmly in the providence of God. And that's why they would charge into a hell of fire, knowing that the odds were against them, practically humanly impossible, but they believed so much in the providence of God, their mindset was, if it's not the will of God that we die, no bullet can touch us. I remember, and I mentioned the other morning, one of the great preachers of yesteryears, he used to say this, he said, we are invincible until God determines otherwise. We need to learn to have some, a thankful heart and attitude toward the Lord and then we need to learn 
that we live according to the providence of God. And we need to understand that whatever comes in our life, if it's not the perfect will of God and things happen because of the decisions that we've made or others, we still need to learn and understand that God in his divine providence will work that for our good and for his glory. And we'll have no contentment until we come to the place we can rest upon those things and realize that God is in full control. A verse we like to quote most of us all the time is Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them who are called according to his purpose. And I say to you tonight that it is really true that we need to learn that everything, and I mean everything, is according to the will of God. He allows it to happen, even if it's the result of sin. God allows the price and the penalty to come our way, and God will use it for his glory. God cannot tempt. I'm reminded of a preacher some years ago. He talked about being uh, God tempting him over certain things. And I didn't rebuke him. He's much older than I was. But I got news for you. God don't tempt anyone. The Bible's very clear concerning that matter. But God will allow things to happen in our life. We make choices, as I said the other week, and, or the other day, Sunday, and we have a price to pay for that. And, but we must rest in the providence of God. You've made a bad financial decision. We have to pay the prices, but we have to rest content that through the midst of all of this, God will get his way. He'll have his way in the storm. And when it's all said and done, we can have contentment because we know who holds the future and we know who holds tomorrow in his hand. God's in control. We should not be surprised or ungrateful when we experience trials because we know that God sees the end results. In 1 Peter 4, 12, uh, Scripture says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning fire trial, uh, which uh, is to try you. And then he goes on in verse number 13, says, But rejoice insomuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Then he says that when his glory shall be revealed, you shall or you may be glad also with exceeding joy. We can have contentment in the spite of our circumstances, in spite of our environment. Thirdly, tonight, if we're going to have contentment, we've got to learn to be satisfied with little. I think that's one of the things that impressed me about some of the third world countries we've been to. They didn't have much. Now, I've not been able to get down to Guatemala yet, but I'm sure Brother Hill can testify tonight while they don't have much, they're a happy people. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, the truth of the matter is tonight we put too many accolades in our things, in our homes. And there's nothing about having, wrong with having a nice home, nothing wrong with having a, a nice automobile, nice clothes and things of that nature. But my friend, if we put our trust in those and that's where our happiness is, our happiness is gone the instant those things are removed. You ever bought a brand new vehicle, didn't have a single scratch on it, or at least a new used vehicle? Within a day or two, you got a little scratch or a fender bender or a ding on it, got upset. I can see a lot of wives laughing at their husband right now looking at them out of the corner of their eye in their peripheral vision. We put our joy in things 
We're commanded not to do that according to the scripture. Notice if you would in the in First Peter, again concerning fiery trials, he said, but rejoice in so much that you're partakers of, the, of Christ's suffering. And my friend, may I say to you, we need to be content with the little things we have in life. In 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We may lose some of the things we have in life, but we'll never lose him if we've claimed him and we've put our faith and trust in him. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and changeth not. That means we can put our trust in him, our contentment in him, and our contentment and peace will be just as steady as she goes. Then we need to learn to live above our circumstances. You know why most Christians are so disgruntled? They're so wrapped up in their circumstances they can't see beyond them. They're nearsighted and can't see afar off, as Peter said in the text. I remember Dr. Elvis Emerson, Brother Hill, used to be our field director of the Rock of Ages. He's in heaven now. And um, he would ask somebody how they're doing. They'd say, well, under the circumstances, I'm doing okay. And he'd look at him and say, are you a Christian? They'd say, yes, sir. He'd say, what are you doing under the circumstances if you're a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be on top of them? And I don't know how many he's rebuked with that. They never got me because I learned by somebody else's mistake. <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is, what are we doing under our circumstances? We allow the challenges in life. We go through and have a hard day and we uh, face the battles and we fight them and we get wrapped up in our circumstances and come home and uh, from work or wherever it might be or school in our society and we are underneath the circumstances of getting hammered day after day after day after day and circumstance after circumstance. Have you ever noticed it's certain people that when they come along automatically, they don't even have to say anything. They've already got you trained. You just automatically get under the circumstances. I know of one particular situation. I was an interim pastor at the uh, Victory Baptist Church while I was a chaplain in Wyoming, and it's not that I desired to do that. It was not my desire. Uh, we had a church. The next independent Baptist church was a, a one-way, 110-mile drive, and I didn't want to take it, but I was only one the church had confidence in to take it, and so I, um, can I be honest with you, I begrudgingly took it, and begging God to turn it around so I could get back to what I was supposed to be doing. And um, I had one particular individual. He came to me nonstop. In fact, when the phone rang, back in those days, you had to pay for um, that ID calling or whatever. We paid for ID calling. <laughs> when I saw him come in the back door of the church, I made a beeline for the church office. And inevitably, I'd be getting ready to leave the pew to come to the platform to preach, and he would corner me on the way to the platform and air his problems and his issues and his challenges on the way to the pulpit to preach the Word of God. He was one of the most disgruntled Christians I've ever seen in my life. He was constantly airing his opinions. And may I say to you tonight, everyone has opinions, but it's good if sometimes we would keep our opinions to ourselves and learn some contentment. Paul lived above his circumstances. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians in chapter number 12 and verse number 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. You know what he's saying to Paul? Paul, I'm not moving your circumstances. You're going to have to live with them and you're going to have to learn to deal with them. Paul, my grace is sufficient. I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm going to put the thorn in the flesh I'm going to allow Satan to buffet you. And Paul, you can beg me all you want. You're just going to have to learn to live with it. And you're going to have to learn that my grace is sufficient in your circumstances. And it'll be a wonderful day when we figure out God's grace is sufficient through all of our circumstances. He said, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore. In other words, he says, with that in consideration, he said, I'll rather glory in my infirmities. And he said later, I'll take pleasure in my infirmities. This verse started out with Paul asking God to remove his infirmities and his circumstances. But God said, Paul, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. It's going to sustain you through all of this. My strength is going to be exemplified through you. And it's almost as Paul said, wait a minute, that's enough. I'll glory in my infirmities. I'll take pleasure in them. That's contentment. A dying man was asked what had robbed him of most of his joy through his life. And he simply replied, the thing that robbed my joy more than anything was the things I worried about that never happened. And we worry and we fret and we get built up with anxiety and fears and fret and the majority of them never even happen. Someone has said, there's three keys to happiness. First, they said, fret not, he loves you. Secondly, faint not, he holds you. Thirdly, fear not, he keeps you. And I'd say that's pretty good advice. If we want to have contentment, we have to learn that God is in control of the circumstances and we need to stay on top of the circumstances by putting our faith in him. Someone has said that God doesn't always still the storm. Sometimes he chooses to calm the sailor. And peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the absence of inner conflict. We can't avoid all the exterior conflict, but we can avoid the interior conflict and not allow our minds. We need to bring it under subjection and let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul said. We need to tear down the strongholds and that which binds us in our heart and our soul. And then there's a fifth thing quickly tonight. We need to learn to rely on God in all things. The apostle wrote in Philippians 4.13, he said, I can do all things. Now, if he stopped right there, uh, Paul would sound like he was arrogant, but he didn't. He said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. May I say to you tonight, we need to learn to rely on God. God really does have control of everything. He may not answer it according to your plan, your purpose, and your way, and my way, but his ways are not our ways, and 
Thank God for that. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and thank God for that. His thoughts are more holy. His ways are more holy and high than ours. But I say to you, we need to learn to rely on him. We say and we teach and we believe that he owns a cat of a thousand hill and he owns it all and we worry ourselves to death over the resources we say that he is able to keep us through the storm and yet we fear and fret in the storm and we say that God can give us peace in the midst of our valleys and struggles and yet we have no peace in the midst of our valleys and struggles. But it's not God's fault. former French prime minister back in the 19th century fought a lot of duels. He was known for fighting his duels. And on one occasion, he went to the railroad attendant at a Paris railroad station and bought a one-way ticket to a duel. And everybody knew that's where he was going. The attendant looked at him and said, it's pretty arrogant, isn't it, just to buy a one-way ticket? Pretty demising. Concerning the other gentleman, the prime minister looked at me and said, oh, no, sir. He said, when I return, I always use the opponent's ticket. That's contentment. Hebrews 13 and 5 says this, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, we need to be careful about breaking trust. Because as we go, so goes our children. As we go, so goes our family. As we go, so goes our influence. A young boy had been told not to mess with his mother's teacups in China. And in rebellion, he was playing with one of them, dropped it and shattered it in multiple pieces. His dad, rather than give him a hard scolding, said to him, so I'm going to teach you a lesson, son. He said, once you breach trust in people, it is very hard to rebuild it. And he swept all the little pieces on the teacup together, gave it to him and a, and a bottle of glue and said, now you'll take every single piece of this teacup and glue it together piece by piece by piece. Painstakingly it took the little boy weeks. But when he's done he brought it to his dad and his dad said to him that's exactly what it's like to rebuild the trust in someone when you're broken and shattered it. We need to learn with great trust and compassion and contentment to rely upon God and we must be willing to have a testimony that is faithful to the Lord, to our families and to each other. May I say to you tonight as we consider the scripture in Ephesians 3 and 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And I say to you tonight, if we're going to have contentment, we need God tonight and we need to learn to trust in him in all of our circumstances and rely upon his divine providence. And then there's a the last thing and I'll be done tonight. And I believe this is just about as important as anything. In Philippians chapter number 2 and verse 3 and 4, let nothing be done 
through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If you want to have contentment tonight, lose your self-centeredness. Get preoccupied with others. Don't turn inward, turn outward. I believe that's one of the things that is the most encouraging in ministry. I remember years ago, Mrs. Ellis and I was going out of town and a prisoner's wife, one of her lovely ladies called and said, Mrs. Ellis, could you and Brother Ellis come by the house on your way out of town? It's very restricted on how much contact we can have with the prisoner's family, especially in those days. But Warden Schillinger had given us permission to work with the prisoner's families, and so we went by and visited with her. When we first met her, she was using a milk crate to sit on for a chair. She had a blanket, if I remember correctly, Miss Ellis, on the floor she was sleeping on. She had one baby's bottle in the refrigerator, and that was the extent of her possessions. With the exception of she loved photographs and pictures, and she had taken magazines and ripped them out of the magazines and put toothpaste on the back of them. Prisoners often use that for glue and stuck them on the wall. Some of her walls were plastered with photographs out of magazines with toothpaste. She literally had almost nothing but the clothes on their back and a few, very, very few belongings. But she had something in the back. She said, we've been uh, working on this for quite some time now. And she went to the back and said, now don't y'all go anywhere. You, you sit right here. And we, she went to the back and came out with a big crayon. It was about probably three feet tall and about, I don't know, six inches or so round. And it was full of change. It was her piggy bank. And she said, God's laid it on my heart to give this to you. Well, we didn't want to take it, but I didn't want to rob her of a blessing if God had told her to give. Uh, we helped take care of many things. Miss Ellis uh, contacted folks in the church, got her couch, a chair, a bed, and got some of the utensils. Uh, even church members gave silverware, plates, things of that nature to help get her set up uh, after we'd gotten back on this trip. But we left on that trip, and it hadn't have been for, if it hadn't have been for that lady's crayon piggy bank, Outside of the divine intervention of God, we wouldn't have made it back home. Am I telling the truth, Mrs. Ellis? And you know what? She didn't have anything in her house save a milk crate, a baby bottle in the refrigerator for a baby, and pictures plastered on the wall, and a few clothes. Everything she owned was in one small suitcase. And you know, she was as happy as you could be. It meant more to her to give it to us if it was possible than it did for us to receive it. And we watched what God did for her. Now, I'm just saying this tonight. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I believe it changed Christianity in America if we just learn some contentment. Would stop our griping, our fussing, our arguing, not implying anybody is, but I know humanity. I be one. 
I'm married to one, and she's married to one. And you're sitting beside one. And you work beside one. And you go to school with one. And we all work with people and around people all the time. And we have to be careful because we complain, we bellyache, we cry. Why don't we just learn contentment to trust God for everything and know that he's on the throne, his will will be done and learn to be happy in Jesus and be able to shout the aisle and shout the house down and praise his name, bless him in the grocery store, bless him at the, at the gas station, bless him in the schoolhouse, lift up our hands and shout it out in the church house. Why? Because we're happy in Jesus and we have some contentment in our heart.